Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. As we gather in this early stages of this church, we're trying to set the set the table and really what is the culture of this church going to look like? Uh, we talked about mission and vision the first time we gathered, and that's really easy, actually, when you're putting a church together. If you're following Jesus, all churches should follow the same mission and vision. The mission is to make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us to do, which is the Great Commission. And the vision really is the fulfillment of that. If that were to happen and we were to create disciples of all nations, what would happen? Well, we would see the kingdom of God here in Sonoma as it is in heaven. That's our vision. We want to see that happen. We want to see the kingdom of God in, in Sonoma as it is in heaven. And so... That's, that's our mission. That's our vision. But how do we do that? That's the culture, right? That's the culture of an organization. It's a culture of a family. And culture oftentimes is more felt and experienced than defined. Um, but we are in these first few gatherings trying to define what the cultural marks of Sonoma Collective is. And so our first uh, two, two gatherings ago, we talked about if we're going to be the people of God, we have to slow down. That we're going to have to embrace the slow down spirituality, the pace of the world, is directly in contradiction and opposed to the things of Jesus. Jesus was never in a hurry and is always exactly where he wanted to be. And so we're going to have to slow down if we really want to try and be the people that God's called us to be, to love him and to love each other well. Love takes time, and we got to, we got to slow things down. Last time we gathered, I talked about uh, we have to fight that desire and that thing within us, that, that cognitive dissonance, right, that duplicitous nature oftentimes, that we have to be people of integrity, right, that the, the leaders of the organization, the, the people that are part of this uh, church, have to be people that do the things that they say they're going to do, and that actually are consistent with their own belief system and, and, and the way they live out their life. So uh, today, I want to start with a question. And so this is a little pop quiz interaction time for all of us. So uh, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? What, what comes to mind when you, if you're defining the word Christian? What is that? Uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it as one who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's a good start, but I would say that's not a full, uh, accurate description, ultimately, of what that means. It's a good starting point. Uh, we see the word Christian only three times in the Bible. It's only three times in the New Testament. It actually is used in a negative, pejorative sense, actually, when it's used, because it's others accusing people of being something, right? It's not a complimentary term. It's not a, hey, you're a Christian, you're awesome. It's a, oh, it's those Christians, right? And so it first happens at Antioch, and the, the word actually is defined as little Christ's. Right, and so an accurate, I think you guys got it. The aim would be that uh, the the people at that time they started to look like, they started to behave like, they started to speak like Jesus, and so people started attaching this name, little Christ, to them. You guys are being like Jesus, right? So it's not just believing or professing even a belief; it's actually living it out, right? It's both those things, and so that's our desire. We want to be like Jesus so that we can do what He did ultimately. But how do we get there? That's what I want to talk about today. How, how do we get there? Is it, is it just something we decide, right? We make a mental agreement in our minds and like, that's it, we're good. So now we're like Jesus. I don't know, maybe, maybe we're hoping one day we wake up in like our like twilight years and we just like look in the mirror and we're like, huh, there's Jesus. There he is. After all these years, he finally, finally showed up, right? Uh, or maybe we put together a strategy and we got a process and like milestones and Gantt charts and periodic reviews. Maybe that's the process or maybe we join a church. We become part of a faith community. We start going to church regularly. We go every week. Uh, we start uh, serving. Maybe we get in a small group. We start giving a little bit. Maybe we even tithe. Is maybe hoping and believing that all that activity will 
help us become like Jesus. Those are good things. And certainly I would say those things are all things we should be doing, but will it actually make us Christ-like? Just simply doing those things. Well, research data would suggest that the popular opinion to that, that question is, yes, in fact, if you do those things, you are a Christian. Uh, many people uh, who do not believe in, in trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior consider themselves Christians simply because they go to church or because they live in, quote, a Christian nation. But simply going to church, it doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. It's not, not enough. This is not how it works. Scriptures clearly teach us that the good works that we do cannot make us acceptable to God. Uh, Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us not because of righteousness and the things we've done, but because of His mercy. Not the righteous things we did, but His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so we know that a Christian is someone who's been born again, according to the language of the New Testament, right? We've been born again by God. Then we've put our trust, as Stephanie said, in faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8, right? It says that it's very simple. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, but it's a gift from God. A gift you couldn't earn, a gift you don't deserve, but a free gift that God's given to you. That's the only way that you can become a Christian. Now that's the gospel, all right? But that's not the full gospel. It's a great, you know, it's a core essence, right, of, of understanding that. Uh, but we understand that it's not our good works, but Jesus' perfect works that brings us into right standing with God. And so this makes us a child of God, part of his true family. And so our, our, re our real identity, who we really truly are, is, is separate. It's secure. It's separate or detached from the good works or the, the not-so-good works that we do at times. Our being is very distinct. It's independent from our doing. There's two different aspects of who we are. But the interesting thing is then Scripture makes it a little more complicated because then it brings in this duality, this idea that, yeah, your being and your doing are separate, but both of them matter to God. First uh, Peter 2.9, it says this about our calling as followers of Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Notice the identity language. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. So that, there's the, there's the hook, so that you, you may proclaim the, pra the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So on one hand, we have our being, right? We are children of God, his possession, bought at a price, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And on the other hand, there's a, the reason why that's the case is so that we can then go and proclaim his goodness, that we can witness and testify to the watching world, that we can allow our good works to reflect on whose we belong to. Like there's a direct connection that, that Peter makes. And so the, the, be, the doing is not the whole story, but it certainly matters to God. He's secured our being, but then there's this other element of, okay, he's concerned with what we actually do with our life. And so that takes us to our passage that we're looking at today, right? If anyone would know about the doing for God, it would be these guys, that first century religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, they would, especially first century Judaism, they would know they had developed a system with over 613 laws or regulations. Where did they get them? Well, they got them from scripture. But in this passage, we have to wonder, where did it get them? We know where they got it from, but did it get them where they needed to be? Well, we we're going to see, as we already heard, that Jesus is going to address, or in this case, undress, the scribes and the Pharisees for their overemphasis on doing versus being. There's just an imbalanced scale in their heart. Ultimately, what we see is he's calling out the shallowness of their faith. Their religiosity, it lacked any depth or substance. It was paper thin and a mile wide. There wasn't any depth to them. 
Now, this whole chapter, chapter 23, it's the it's an unbroken pronunciation of woe, right? How often do we use woe today, right? Woe is, you know, we don't really relate to that, right? It's a very strong condemnation, though, in Scripture. He, he pronounced these woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes. It's the most powerful and sustained denunciation that Jesus gave, ever gave to anybody. This is the harshest that we ever see Jesus speaking to anyone. Now, before we think that Jesus was just like, I'm out of his meds that day or something, right? And he was like having a bad day. Remember, at the end of this passage, he weeps over Jerusalem, right? He's calling these guys out. He's saying, look at what you're doing. At the very end of it, we see this thread of compassion and just heartbreak as he's calling them out. Because at the end of it, he's weeping over Jerusalem, the city that he couldn't bring and reconcile back to himself, right? The heart of where his people were supposed to be were so far from him. And so it's easy, though, before we get into this, to, from our modern context, especially in the 21st century, to dismiss these critiques as only applicable to first century religion or these like religious leaders, right? They, they, it'd be easy to say, Jesus isn't speaking to me, right? I'm not these guys. They, they're the, they should have known better. But we just need to stop for a moment, clothe ourselves with humility, and remember that context is king, right? Context matters, right? We, we don't understand the, the context, what's happening fully here. But when we hear that word Pharisee, if we're, if we, if we're just Word association, the first thing that probably comes to mind is hypocrite. For most, especially if you've been in church for any period of time, because we hear these stories about these guys that were right there, and they're the ones of, the, of all the people that were there that should have known that who Jesus was, that he was the fulfillment of their Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, that he was the one, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. He should, he's the one. These guys should have known that, and they didn't. So we think, oh, okay, well, they missed the boat. But we have to remember that the contemporaries of these Pharisees, they thought of these guys as very devoted practitioners of the Bible. They thought that these guys had it together. And the scribes, they were the experts at biblical law. They were the ones that like had half the, the scriptures memorized, right? That's what Jesus is putting on blast in our context today. In today's terms, Jesus would be talking against popular preachers that many, many of us listen to in podcasts, right? Or at least, and this is where it gets really personal, people who seem to be living holy lives. You see, none of us has an excuse to say he's not talking to us. This isn't addressed to us. Any of us supposedly following Jesus trying to live a holy life, not better than, but a purified holiness. He's speaking to us. Be careful. You see, this wasn't just an indictment against the first century religious leaders, but this is a warning to all who would follow Jesus for all time. He's given us a warning. So let's take a look. Notice the nature of the woes. We begin in verse 13. The first thing he denounces is it concerning the fact the Pharisees were preventing other people from entering the kingdom, Right? It's sadly ironic that the very people who should be opening the door were closing it. The ones who should have made it as easy as possible for people to say yes to Jesus were the ones who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And because of their rejection of him, were inadvertently preventing others from following after him as well. People trusted these guys. They were the religious elite. They were given money and time and attention to them to lead them. And yet they're the ones saying that Jesus isn't the one. In verse 15, the second woe, he calls out the zealous pursuit of making converts, right? We think about today, the missionaries, right, that we send out all over the world to go and share the gospel in unreached people groups and places. And he's saying, listen, you guys go all over the world to, to bring a proselyte or a convert in our terms back into the faith, into the family of God and make him a son of Abraham. But because of your lack of understanding true teaching, your false teaching, you're making twice a son of hell as you. Right? And we're reminded that the Paul's words, they're, they're, they're an encouragement, but also a, a warning, right? Paul said, listen, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we think about the Pharisees, that people were following them, but they were leading them astray because of their false teaching. And so you need to remember that 
People are imitating you. People are following you. The question is, where are you leading them? Where are you taking them? Are you getting them closer to Jesus or are they becoming a little bit more like your sort of stained glass version of Jesus? Right? Or the, the, the version where you haven't quite figured some things out and so that's what they see and they, maybe they project that out to Jesus. And so in Woes 3 and 4, we get this pairing and so Jesus starts to shift his focus to the unhealthy focus of the wrong priorities of the Pharisees. Now, in this passage here, it's a little bit, you know, it's kind of long here, this part about oath swearing. But Jesus really breaks it down. He says, look, this is really simple. A promise is a promise. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. It's really simple. He's saying that, that what difference does it make if you promise inside or outside the house of worship? Right? If you promise on a gathering on Sunday or you promise when you're at the gas station talking to somebody. A promise is still a promise. Jesus is there. God is present. He's watching you and he's holding you accountable to the things that you say. So stop swearing. Stop calling on the name of someone who's got a more influence or higher status to say, well, so-and-so said, so therefore you should listen to me. Or I read this article, so therefore you should listen, but just let your SBS. Don't, don't call upon somebody higher. Uh, in the fourth woe in verse 23, Jesus continues this misplaced theme of priorities and he highlights the meticulous tithing. He says, listen, you guys, you tithe on your spices. Like, you're really good at keeping accounts of how much you should give, giving a 10%. And it's interesting because he doesn't condemn them for it. He doesn't say that you shouldn't be doing that. But what he does reveal is just how this is done at the expense of the more important things. The weightier matters, really the simple elements, the basics of the faith, justice, compassion, faithfulness. He's saying, you guys are doing this really small stuff, but you're forgetting the big stuff, the most important things. You see, they were majoring on the minors while minoring on the majors. Minor matters are overly elevated and major ones are neglected. They, they and we today should be doing both. They say, look, the tithing is good. Keep doing it. But don't forget the compassion and the mercy, the faithfulness. That's what I'm calling you to be. That's what it looks like to represent me. So those, those two make a pair. And then we see in, verse, in, in the woes five and six that they also form, form the pair. But now he's directly dealing with hypocrisy. Specifically, he's focusing on the elements of hypocrisy about outward appearances, right? There's different elements, different nuances of hypocrisy. We talked about those last gathering, but this time he's saying, listen, your outward appearance is, is you're so focused on that at the neglect of your interior life. They were concerned with external cleanliness, like the outside of the cup and the dish from which they would eat, but they were in their hearts, there was greed and self-indulgence. And so their cleansing was primarily done for the sake of being seen by others. They were, they were fine with putting on all the right appearances and saying all the right prayers. They had these things called phylacteries, phylacteries, which were like wooden boxes on their foreheads, which would hold scriptures of Torah and prayers, right? And they would have these long tassels, right? To remind them to pray all day long. They had all that stuff down, but inside that it wasn't above the Pharisees to, to go to robbery, <laughs> right? Or to even to, to take from people, to lead them astray. And so our, 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 com our contemporary parallels are, are unfortunately pretty frightening. Our Christian behavior, our church appearance, it looks really good on the outside, especially on Sundays, right? We all got our act together. My kids are really cute on Sundays, right? But that's on Sundays, right? But how much do we actually spend on ourselves at the neglect of being generous to others? Indulging in our own desires or material and sensual appetites. How often do we attack others without cause? Talking behind people's backs, not being forthright and, and having the direct conversation with them but we look really good on Sundays. Jesus said, no, that's not, you clean the outside, that's great, but you're, you're neglected what's truly important, the interior, what's going on inside. 
If we could work on those interior problems, then the outward appearances would take care of themselves. And then in the sixth woe, Jesus continues this theme of the external purification, but this time he shifts from their actions to their appearances. Now see, a custom at this time was they would, they would once a year, they would go and they would clean the tombs. They would put this whitewash on them to make them look really shiny and bright. And this is so that they would look pretty, right? But of course, inside, we know in, this, in these tombs was the decaying, decaying flesh of dead people, right? And so he says to them, that, to the Pharisees, look, you guys look great on the outside because of your hyper-religious conformity. They were really good at keeping those 613 laws, really good at making sure all the boxes were checked, but yet they were corrupt and dying and decaying on the inside. They were full of hypocrisy and full of wickedness. And Jesus had no problem calling them out for that. And so in our final condemnation, the seventh one, and we see throughout Scripture, seven is a number of completeness. And if not a coincidence, we know that Matthew intentionally wrote out seven of these. The final condemnation, he shows them again their hypocrisy. So they were quick to say, look, if we had lived then in the time of the prophets, when we were there with Elijah and Jeremiah, we would have, we would have honored those guys. We would have listened to them. We wouldn't have killed them by any stretch of the imagination. And Jesus, of course, knew that they were already plotting to kill him. He knew inside their hearts and he knew within the week that he would already be dead at their hands. And by that very act, they would demonstrate that they were just like the former generations who murdered the prophets. But by rejecting the prophet, they would be following the footsteps of the forefathers and as we saw in red, filling up their ancestors' sin, just continuing that same pattern. And again, we can sit here, it's easy to throw stones back through time and say, man, if I was one of those guys, I would have known Jesus was the one. All right, I wouldn't have bought into that stuff. I would have seen it. I would be like, oh yeah, he fulfilled all these prophecies we've been studying our whole lives and I would have saw them. But we got to be a little honest. Again, be, hum be humble about this. The reality of our Christianity today, it does tell a different story. Church attendance is one example. Uh, research, most, most current research says that about 20 to 50% of people have not returned to church pre-pandemic levels. So March 2020, March 15th, that was, that was the first shutdown. I still remember it. I remember, I remember the service on the 8th, and I remember that we didn't have it on the 15th. They go, oh, okay, we're going to be out of, not having church for a few weeks. Let's see what this is like, right? Here we are two and a half years later, 20 to 50% of the people that used to be filling those churches are no longer in church anymore, right? And this just reveal, reveals a comprehensive lack of deep discipleship and deep spiritual transformation. The, the pandemic was a catalyst for many things. Church attendance was on the decline for years. This is a trend that you, you could have seen. You look back for 10, 20, 30 years, right? And so the catalyst was the pandemic and just accelerated what was already happening, right? In our churches, we just have a lack of discipleship, a lack of spiritual formation, a lot of activity, a lot of fun stuff happening, but not true transformation at an interior level. Another example, uh, Christian leaders and, and all the scandals that we see, right? It's, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's beyond scandalous. Right? I mean, we're just kind of waiting almost for the next one to happen. And what it does, we're, just, we're not really shocked anymore when we see a high-profile pastor or leader has some moral failing of some sort. It almost seems like it's happening every month we see these things happening. Right? Why is this the case? Of course, Christians in many ages have done a remarkable job, like we read earlier, of majoring on the minor and minoring on the major. A uh, great example of this over the last hundred years is just look at all the denominations and groupings. There are hundreds and hundreds of denominations within the Protestant stream of faith. Right? And this is, all, this is a phenomenon that's really only happened in the last hundred years. And so we, listen, as true Christians, we must stand uncompromisingly against all professing believers who promote a teaching, if embraced, would prevent them from true salvation. We need to stand unified in that, of course. But we must bend over backwards and get along and cooperate with those who differ on doctrines that don't affect salvation. 
We need to embrace the unity that Jesus prayed over us in John 17. He said, look, I want you to be one like me and the Father are one. That's what it should look like across denominational lines. Like, there's so many things that are just non-essential to the faith that we fight over and we create denominations over. And, and so as an unbeliever, which group am I supposed to join? Where, where do I get involved in this following Jesus thing? Because there's so many flavors and options. And I'm not anti-denominational, but at the same time, it's just one example of how we look just like those Pharisees from the first century. Right? We got all this kind of activity on the outside, but inside there we're decaying. There's, there's, there's something that's not where it's supposed to be. And so then again, we have to ask, how did this happen? Well, I think the real danger and, and horror is that it's easy to remain in a comfortable, distorted illusion about our lives. Something may not be true, but we become so used to it that it just starts to feel okay or even feel right. And there's a few people in our lives that are at work and in our home lives that they can call us out on that or they can see something's not right, but then even few of them have the maturity to lovingly like confront us and say, hey, there's something kind of amiss right now in your life. And so look, for the first 10 years of my life as a Christian, give or take, and the previous 30 years before that that I didn't walk with Jesus, I rarely took time to look deeply within my interior. As the, as the psalmist call it, they call it the interior, my heart, my depths, my soul, however you want to define it. But it, rarely did I do that. Yes, I spent a lot of time and still do in prayer, time with God, scripture reading, listening to his voice, and confessing my sins. But even so, I can confidently say that I was not taking a deep, hard look inside. Of what was really happening. I wanted to pastor our church well. I wanted to preach good messages, right? My focus was on upward and outward, right? I wanted to grow the church. I wanted to see people come to the Lord. I wanted to see the activity in the community, serve the community, make an impact on our city, right? I wanted to develop the staff that, that I was leading. But an authentic relationship with Christ also takes us into the depths. It takes us into the shadows, into the strongholds, and the darkness deep within our own souls that must be purged. And surrendering to this inward and downward journey is difficult and very painful. Welcome to following Jesus. And here's the thing, because it's painful, most people believe that they're already taking a deep, hard look inside. I know that I did for years. But the sad reality is that I had not allowed Jesus to transform the deep layers underneath the surface. And so my life and your life, it's like an iceberg. And if you're familiar with an iceberg, the, the weightier portions are always underneath the surface. As the photo illustrates, only about 10% of an iceberg actually lives above the waterline. And this is the part of our lives, which is what we're consciously aware of. This is the stuff we know about ourselves that we think about and we try and do stuff about all the time. However, the Titanic problem was not with the 10%, right? It was with the 90%. That's why that, that's, that boat sank was because they didn't realize the 90% underneath the surface. And most of us leaders and just people in general, we shipwreck or live in inconsistent lives because of the forces and motivations that are beneath the surface, things that we've never even considered. And so on the top, you've got 10%. That's our activity, our competence, our performance, what we would call our false self, what the church for thousands of years has been calling the false self. And that's where you see the gifts of the spirit typically happening. But the core of who we actually are, our real identity, our nature, it's below the waters, below the surface. Right, our true nature, our identity, our character, our true self, as opposed to our false self. And this is where the fruits of the Spirit often are doing their work and are most often seen. And the challenge that we face as followers of Jesus is that our culture that we live in, this world that we live in, is obsessed with the 10%. Everything in our life is geared towards working on and focusing on and promoting that top 10%. That's the world that we live in. 
Think about it. When you meet somebody the first time, what's the first thing you do? You tell them your name, and then you tell them what? What you do, right? You talk about this up here, 10%. I mean, we define our lives, and, and we, we describe them by our jobs and our hobbies, where we live, where we travel, who we know, how much or how little money we might have in the bank. Like Those are the ways that we describe and define our lives. And yet, that only makes up 10% of who we actually are. The core of who we are, the real identity is below. But because of the culture we live in, we've been conditioned and we've been formed in this culture. And so we bought into this performance-based identity. But the performance-based identity is toxic and is deadly. Because ultimately, when we ask those questions, who am I? Which, by the way, is a really good question. Find one of the most important questions you'll ever ask. Who am I? You'll find, if you, if you really take time to really answer that, is you're going to answer with top-based questions or answers. You're going to answer with the top 10%. You're not going to answer with this stuff down here, most likely. And the problem, of course, is this leads us to our value that we see in ourselves or the value that people have of us. It's going to go down as our performance drops. And inevitably, all of us, our performance is going to drop. Because guess what? We're all getting older. We're not as strong as we once were. We're not as smart as we thought we once were. And so as time goes on, we all are susceptible to that. Eventually, our performance will drop in some form or fashion. And our value in our culture will start to go down. And the worst part is often our own value as we see ourselves also goes down because we're not performing the top 10% as well. It's a deadly trap. And it's all that the world can really offer us is if you perform just well enough, then you'll be good. When Jesus says, no, no, I've made you so much more than that. Your true identity is below that surface. See, we, the, the truth is, is that we behave out of who we are. That, that down on the, underneath the surface, the true essence, that's where our actions are going to flow from. Solomon got it right. He said it well, guard your hearts above all else for it is a source of life. And when he says heart, he's not talking about your emotions as we would often think about say in a Hallmark obsessed culture, but like your core, your identity, your interior, that's where it comes from. And so here's the thing. It can be really frightening to trust God's grace and love in order to look deeply inside. It's a lot easier to not take that deep look inside, just to keep moving on and not worry about it. Most of us, we just don't know how to. I didn't for a long time. But here's the thing. Ultimately, we don't want behavior modification. We want true transformation. We want to be transformed. We want to be like Jesus. That's what our desire is. And so if we're going to do that, we've got to tend to that deep hidden part of who we really are, true nature. Uh, there's a quote by a former Secretary General of the United Nations. His name is uh, Dag Hammarskjöld. Uh, I, I really had to practice that name. Um, he suggested this, uh, that we've become really adept at exploring outer space, but we have not developed similar skills in exploring our own personal inner space. As he is quoted as saying, the longest journey of any person is the journey inward. It's the longest journey we ever face. Most of us feel much more equipped to manipulate objects and control situations that do things than to take that very long journey. And here's, here's the, the reality of why it's so difficult to take this journey. It's because we are obsessed with comfort. We build our lives. We do everything in our lives, oftentimes with a, a, a hidden motive at times of, I want to be comfortable. I want to live a good life. I want to have just enough money in the bank. I don't have to stress. I want to make sure things in my life are good. My family's relationships are good. I got food, clothing. Like, don't make things too much discomforting for me. But as we know, pain is the greatest motivator. Oftentimes, we don't take action until the pain gets to the point where we can't ignore it anymore. Unless there's sufficient discomfort or anguish, most of us will not do the work to take a deep look inside of who we really are. And this typically seems to apply most appropriately and most commonly to men and women in midlife, right? Hence midlife crisis, 
right? Oftentimes you see people doing some really radical things in their life because the pain has just gotten to a point where they can't bear it anymore. And it's been rightly said that we change our behavior only when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Again, path of least resistance. We're, we're so conditioned to do that. Right? Eventually, you know, you've got this problem in your life. It's an addiction. It's a behavioral thing. It's anger. Something is so bad that if, at some point you say, you know what, I have to do something about it because I just can't continue this because maybe someone's going to leave you in your life or, you know, you're going to lose everything. And so it's okay. I finally have to do something about this. The pain has gotten so great. I can't keep living this way. And so we have to ask, as we continue the analogy of the iceberg, what happens when those icebergs, as they often do, drift into warmer waters? Well, that would be pain for an iceberg, right? Because the, below the surface starts to melt. Another really cool uh, part of that analogy is that, you know, ice, icebergs are freshwater and they exist in the ocean, which is salt water, right? By being in the world and not of it. Just, you know, it's a cool analogy. It's true But as an iceberg gets into warmer waters, what happens is the below the surface starts to melt. It starts to disintegrate. The top 10% doesn't change at all. So the activity keeps going, everything's going fine, but below there's a melting and there's a stripping away. But what happens is, is at some point, there creates a, a disequilibrium where the, the weight starts to shift and the weight becomes too much on top. This creates an imbalance. And so what happens is these icebergs start to flip. And sometimes it even causes them to completely roll over. And this can be done with such force that the movement can make the iceberg explode, which just sends shards of icy water into the air. Some of us in our life, we've experienced that. The pain gets so deep and we just get deteriorated and stuff's happening at our core level and something happens in crisis and then our world gets flipped side upside down. And all that activity, all that top of the iceberg surface stuff, it just becomes meaningless at that point. All of a sudden we're in a new place and we got a new, new life we have to live. So question is, I don't want to leave you all with doom and gloom, so what are some solutions? <laughs> I think there's four elements of what it looks like to really go deeper beneath the surface. Uh, the first one is we have to grow in our self-awareness. Awareness of what we're actually feeling and doing. Jesus uh, is really the most deeply aware human that's ever lived, right? He was so aware of what he was and who he was supposed to be that he was able to break away from the expectations that so many put on in his family, his friends, disciples, the wider religious culture. I mean, he is the definition of countercultural, right? He wasn't, he was one of the reasons he was able to do this because he was so differentiated, right? He understood, he knew himself, he knew his true motives and his true feelings. And it's in the same way that a deep awareness of what we are feeling and doing, it would give us the courage to actually start to do something about it, to live a different life, hopefully to live according to God's will for our life. And actually would allow us to develop healthier patterns of those in our life. And, and, and so I love that scripture portrays Jesus as having intense, raw, emotional experiences. And yet he was able to express those emotions in an unashamed way, unembarrassed, totally free of what other people thought about him. I, I'm envious of his ability to do that. He didn't repress his feelings. He didn't project his feelings onto others. Instead, we read of him responsibly experiencing the full range of human emotions throughout his earthly ministry. In today's language, we would describe Jesus as very emotionally intelligent. He was very aware of what was going on, mostly inside of him as well as what was going on outside of him. Unfortunately, most of us today in and out of the church, we are very self-conscious. We're just not very self-aware. Sorry. Yeah. You can tweet it if you are. It's fine. Or that may be a little too close. Either way. 
we're so worried about what other people think about us than about wrestling with our feelings and our motivations. So first, if we're going to grow in this, we have to increase our self-awareness. The second thing is we have to ask the why questions, the motivation questions. A beautiful example of this is Jesus' interaction with the, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Okay, This is, by the way, the longest recorded conversation we have in Scripture that Jesus is having with anyone, and he did it with a Samaritan woman, no less. There's just so much to that. But he keeps confronting her with why questions. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why have you lived the life that you, you've lived? And of course, she doesn't want to answer that because that's getting real personal, Jesus, and you're just like the strange guy at a well, right? And so she keeps deflecting that, like, no, no, no. Like, so where's the appropriate place to worship? Like, she just tries to change the subject, right? You've ever done that before, right? Things are getting a little too personal, so let's just change the subject. She's like, you know, you guys are, you know, you guys are the Jews with Samaritans. We believe we're supposed to worship over here. You guys say worship over here, right? She keeps trying to change the subject. And so Jesus, of course, lovingly, just keeps calling her to examine her life beneath the surface. He says, just keep going a little deeper. He says, listen, would you just consider that perhaps the way you're living your life is immoral lifestyle? Perhaps it's an indication of your deep desire to truly experience love. Perhaps that's what's really going on in your life. He, he forces her to get to that deeper level to really wrestle with what's, what's going on inside her. So here's just a few questions you can ask yourself to help you in this journey, right? Things like, why am I always in a hurry? Why am I so impatient? Why am I so anxious? Why am I overly concerned that others tell me that I'm okay as a leader or teacher or fill in the blank? Why am I devastated that so-and-so told me after this message that they didn't really get anything out of it? Right? Why do I dread this meeting today at 2 o'clock? Why am I so flooded with fear about this thing I have to do? Why am I over-concerned that I succeed in my career or in my ministry? Why do I avoid confronting difficult people at school and at work and in my family? Why do I have a need to immediately return all phone calls and texts? Or why do I avoid returning certain phone calls and texts to certain people? Now, these are just some of those motivation questions that if we take the time to ask, one, at the very least, these are uncomfortable. If we get really honest with ourselves, they can be very uncomfortable to ask. And it takes great courage to ask these things. But uh, Blaise Pascal, mathematician, uh, French philosopher, he wrote this, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. When's the last time you sat in a room by yourself? Just you and the Lord. It gets really uncomfortable pretty quick, right? Like no, no, like audio Bible reading, just sitting in silence, not reading, just in silence with the Lord. We're going to, in the future, we'll talk about that's one of our practices is a silence and solitude. We'll, we'll, as a community, we'll, we'll step into that and support each other in that. But sitting in silence can be very transformative. A third thing, right? So first we have to become self-aware. Second, ask those why, those motivation questions of ourselves. The third thing is we have to link the gospel and emotional health. Okay. Uh, Pete Cesaro, who's kind of like a, a hero in the faith for me in terms of like the way he's developed things. He's written many books on emotionally healthy church, spirituality, discipleship, and his emotionally healthy discipleship is a course that we will eventually as a community all go through together. In fact, at the beginning of the year, core leadership team, we're going to go through that together. But he has a quote, he says, oftentimes is that it is impossible to be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. It's impossible. If you're emotionally immature, then you cannot be spiritually immature. Those things go hand in hand. And so in, in Martin Luther, the great reformer, in his, uh, in his preface and his commentary on Galatians, he said the gospel can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. A Christian's righteousness, he wrote, is utterly separate from anything we do. For we do nothing for it and we give nothing for it. We only receive and allow the other to work, in this case, God, right? Again, the, we've been saved by grace through faith, not by works. And God has given us the gospel in order that we would create a safe environment so that we can look beneath the surface. 
right? I don't have to prove that I'm lovable or valuable. God's already declared that over my life. I don't have to be right all the time, although I'd like to be, just being honest. I can be vulnerable. I can be myself, maybe even if others don't accept me, which I don't really want, but it's true. I can even take risks and fail. Why? Because God sees the 90% of the iceberg hidden below the surface, and he utterly and totally loves me in Christ Jesus. All the faults and failures, he sees that 90% and says, I died for you, I love you, you are enough for me. It's because of that we get the true freedom of the gospel to be able to go deep. So two statements, uh, one negative, one positive. I already said the negative one. It's impossible to be spiritually immature and emotionally immature. Here's the positive statement. You can be yourself because there's nothing left to prove. You don't have to prove anything. God's already said it's finished. It's enough. You're good enough. So the determining factor in our relationship with God is not our past or present record of performance. It's Jesus' past record that has been credited to my account as a gift. That's why we can do that and have that freedom. The final thing, the fourth thing, to get to the deep interior and allow God to do some deep work within us is to get rid of the false self or the glittering image. So here's the deal. If the goal of spiritual formation is to become our true selves by becoming like Jesus for the sake of others, right? We're not just looking to become like Jesus so we can be better ourselves, but that we could be a blessing to those around us. Then the best and truest gift that you can give to the world around you is your very own transforming and transformed self. That's it. Become the best version that you can be, the most like Jesus you can possibly become. That is the greatest gift that you can give to the world around you. But becoming who we are is easier said than done. It requires to know God and to know ourselves, both. And see, on this journey, as we quickly come to find, there is a mutuality, an interconnectedness between those two things. We see, knowledge of God produces knowledge of self since we are, in fact, made in God's image. So as we grow closer, we learn more about God, we actually learn more about ourselves. And as we learn more about ourselves, that true knowledge of ourselves, it reveals the intricacies of God's beauty and design. And so they, they just kind of feed into one another. As we learn more about God, we discover more of ourselves, and it just continues to grow in that sense. But the challenge is that crouching right around the corner is what the church has for centuries called the false self, the glittering image that we use to hide our brokenness. It's what we project out there to the world. The false self is a part of us that overcompensates. God bless you. Uh, it de deflects, it distracts others, and sometimes even ourselves from the parts that we'd rather that others not see. It's who we put out there. It's not only the part of us that sins, but it's the part of us that tries to hide our sin and shame. It's the first, it's the first thing we see from our original parents, right? Adam and Eve, they sin, was the first thing they do, they cover up. And hence the false self is born, right? I'm no longer safe. I can't be vulnerable. I've got to protect. I've got to cover. I can't let God, I can't let others see what's really going on here. And while the false self attempts to produce its own covering, the true self allows God to be its covering. God's, God's enough for me. I can let him cover me. I don't have to cover and I don't have to be ashamed of anything that I've done because God's already covered that for me. The really know ourselves then, our true selves, it requires more than just a Christian personality test or spiritual gifts inventory. It requires self-knowledge without deception, without the self-protecting shiny exterior that we use to hide the parts we don't like or feel ashamed of. So just to recap, the four things that we can work on. First, grow in self-awareness. Second thing, ask those why questions. Link the gospel and emotional health. And finally, getting rid of our false self. And so I want to encourage us this week, because when we do our teachings and we gather, we always want to tie them to a practice, right? Spiritual discipline. Thank you for being a counterweight role. That was good. 
we always want to tie it to a practice, right? You, you probably know them as spiritual disciplines. And, and so last month in our gathering, I introduced uh, probably for the first time for many of you what's called the daily examine. And we get this um, from the Jesuit stream of Christianity. And there's so much to be uh, learned and gained from church history. I think it's uh, oftentimes myopic and it's to our detriment when we just look at the Protestant stream and think that, that we've got it all figured out. There's fi- you know 1,500 years of history before that of what it means to follow Jesus. But the daily examine is something that you can do twice a day, at the very least once a day. Certainly at the end of the day, I'd, I'd recommend it to be the best time to do it. Uh, and we'll put this information up on the website so you can have this. But the idea is very simple. You're going to review your day in the presence of God, right? Take about 15 minutes and just some of the things we just talked about, asking those why questions, growing in self-awareness. It's inviting Holy Spirit to come in and say, okay, show me what happened today. Right? Highlight a, a, a conversation, highlight a moment, whether I thought it was big or, or, or little, Lord, you show me what it is you want me to take from today. And it's to allow Holy Spirit to speak that to you. It's to give thanks for the things you had in your day. It's to pay attention to your emotions. I mean, I know all of this. I'll speak for myself. I'm sure most of us have had those days where things happen just so fast. It's like by the time you get in bed, it's like, I have no idea what I felt today. It just, the day happened. And then you're in bed, you're like, well, okay, I hope tomorrow's better. Right. Or at least a little slower so I can feel some things. Right. And so it's taking time to really feel our emotions. And then it's, it, it's inviting Holy Spirit to say, what do you want me to pray for from today? What's something that I miss? Something I need to grow from? And ultimately, Lord, what do I need for tomorrow? Right. And so it's this opportunity that once a day, to end our day before we lay our heads down on our pillows to say, Lord, I want to invite you in this space because I don't want to miss the treasures that were there for me today. Maybe in some painful situations, maybe something I just totally glossed over because I got distracted. But it's inviting God in. You can do that in the middle of your day as well if you've got the space and time, but certainly at the end of the day. So I want to encourage us as a community this month to, to, to practice this daily examine. Take the time, reflect. Those of you who like to journal, this is like, you're just giddy with excitement to do this, right? For those of you that are not like myself, it's like, okay, I can do this. I'll put it on my calendar and I'll have to make sure it happens. Right, but to take the time and really start feeling our feelings because if we want to be the people that God told us to be, we, we've got to do that deep work. We've got to be willing to go beneath the surface, got to invite God into that space, allow him to start doing that, that deep transformational work. Church activities are great. They're wonderful. They're good. But if we're not deeply transformed from the interior, all that stuff is just a show, a facade. It's not changing us, right? It's just, it's just religious acts, and, and God's not really pleased with that. He wants to see deep transformation.